This episode of the Cocktail Party Congress is brought to you by Victory Gin. Victory Gin, for all your party needs and the party's needs for you. 120 proof from still to glass with love from Big Brother. Victory Gin, belly feel double plus good. Warning, this podcast usually contains explicit language, thought crime, and poor life choices. The Cocktail Party Congress would like to remind you to drink and think responsibly. In vino veritas. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books, Miss Saunders. Men should hold it up in front of them every single day of their lives and say, I'm free to think and to speak. My ancestors couldn't. I can. And my children will. You know, I'm a voter. Aren't you supposed to lie to me and kiss my butt? Welcome to the Cocktail Party Congress, the only political podcast to our knowledge with a three-drink minimum. I'm JT Andrews. And I am Dan Caves. Well, Dan, this is it. The big one. We made it. The last of our Bill of Rights assessment special thing we got going. Yep. The last amendment that we ever passed. No, not really. But no, we're we're all. there at the Tenth Amendment. It's it's the last of the Bill of Rights. Super mm. important. Yeah, su- yeah, super important one for many good and bad reasons. But yes, uh, you know so, it's it's gonna yeah it it all kind of comes down to what the states want to do. You know, <laughs> and undoubtedly, as our listeners probably already know. Yes, the Civil War is going to come into play here. So, yeah, you're damn right. So, in light of this fact, in sort of a North and South rivalry, shall we say, we have not one, but two cocktails for you. Yes, that's correct. We left it up to the states to decide for themselves which cocktails to uh, to have for this episode. So, so JT, why don't we start off by hearing what you're drinking down where oh. you are? I'm not going to out you on, uh, yeah. <laughs> on your I, location. I, but I will li- say that I, li- I live significantly further south than Dan does. <laughs> so I have, by default, I have to have the... Uh, the a southern drink shall we say and my southern drink is in fact the mint julep Mm. one of my favorite cocktails of all time so to make this drink traditionally you will need a silver cup however i'm really extraordinarily cheap so (laughs) i just put it in a rocks glass uh but to make this drink you're going to need a rocks glass and you're going to fill it with crushed ice uh, you can do that just with a hammer, cocktail spoon, whatever, what have you. Uh, Hammer's more fun. Hammer is more fun. <laughs> hammer time. <laughs> but you're going to fill a glass or a silver cup with crushed ice, to which you are going to add uh, two parts bourbon to one part simple syrup. Um, of course, you can adjust to your liking. You can make this as tr- as sweet or as uh, bourbony as you would like, but it's Kentucky bourbon and simple syrup. And then you're going to garnish it with a sprig of very fresh mint. And uh, very little stirring is required for this drink, but it is absolutely delicious and one of my favorites. So, Dan, neighbor to the north, uh, <laughs> what what is your beverage of choice? Uh, the state government has elected to serve me a Rob Roy, which is a variant on a cocktail that we've already seen on the podcast. It's a variant of the Manhattan, and uh, the the only difference from the Manhattan is you're going to use Scotch whiskey. So, uh, you know, just a refresher on how to build yourself now a Rob Roy. You're going to want to take two ounces of uh, Scotch whiskey, go with a blend if you don't want to waste your single malt on a on a cocktail, and then uh, pour that together with an ounce of sweet vermouth and a few dashes of bitters over ice with a maraschino cherry to uh, to garnish and stir that together, and boom, you've got yourself a Rob Roy. 
quite a different flavor profile from a Manhattan. You know, you're going to get some of that peatiness from the scotch, but uh, I got to say, it's quite a delicious drink, and you know, it 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 it, it brings out the Scot Irish in me, and it, it makes me happy on that on that account. So I do you know, love me a Rob Roy. I'm not going to lie. I you know, it's a delicious drink. So I encourage everyone try out both of these cocktails, maybe in the same night, and uh, but do so responsibly, and don't. Don't go starting any any wars along the way. It's uh, or engines for that matter. Or yeah, no. Well, you could run your engine on some of the some of the stuff I've got in my bar. But, is, that, uh, is that rocket fuel or what? <laughs> Two parts rocket fuel to one part sweet vermouth, and <laughs> shake it over ice, and <laughs> you've got yourself a Saturn V. And uh, I'm sure that's how that works. Science. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Well, as we already discussed, JT, we're talking about the Tenth Amendment, the last in this series. Oh, it feels like so long ago that we were just like, it was the day after St. Patrick's Day where we were <laughs> where we struggled to get through the First Amendment. <laughs> that that was how, how are we still alive after that night? Uh, we're, we're sort of going down the Keith Richards road of like pickling ourselves. You know, we're, we're like, we're, we're getting a head start on our embalming. <laughs> so it's tour luring our way to an early grave, as you once put it. <laughs> yeah, no. And oh man, it's, it's been a good run and there are going to be many more cocktails mm. beyond this, but, uh, Certainly uh, so. JT, do you have your pocket constitution handy? I figure maybe one of us could, uh, when could wouldn't... read out. When wouldn't I have my pocket constitution handy? How many are within reach of you right now? Let's have you see. learned? I Within reach, I've only got one because I, I record in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I turn, I turn my closet into a recording booth. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a good setup. Um, anyway. I can see it on my webcam. <laughs> yeah, you can probably see some clothes hanging in the background. <laughs> That's so. what we called soundproofing. <laughs> And some old curtains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, elsewhere in my house, I know I have at least, like, I want to say I have four, at least four. Yeah. Four pockets, uh, constitutions. I'm about in the same boat as you. <laughs> One for every room in the house. Well, JT, why don't you do us the honors of reading the Tenth Amendment to our listeners? All right. Amendment 10, or X. <laughs> For those who don't read Roman numerals. Oh, you mean it's not Malcolm the <laughs> Tenth? No, Dan, it is not. Oh, <laughs> but... Shit. <laughs> okay, bad joke. Go on. <laughs> yeah. God, it's terrible. <laughs> anyway, Tenth Amendment. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. There it is. Uh, w- wait a minute. That sounds officially familiar. That, like, I feel like the Ninth Amendment is the far less useful way of saying basically that. Well, the Ninth Amendment doesn't really talk about the states. It talks about no. people. The nebulous concept of the people. But you're right. It it, it does talk about the states. It, 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 it reinforces the concept of federalism. In our system, I guess. Yes, of uh, the rights of the states to pick and choose their own laws as long as they fall within constitutional limits. Yeah, or or more, maybe another way to put that, it is a prohibition on Congress from overstepping its enumerated powers in the Constitution. I mean, there have been interpretations of different clauses in the Constitution that have broadened that, and of course... An entire civil war to cast aspersions on the concept of state sovereignty and state autonomy for very good reason. But uh, in the history of of uh, the United States, it's uh, Congress has taken a more active role in um, in uh, you know legislating around the states, and uh, you know it it's an amendment that is complicated. <laughs> to say the least it's complicated and it's got a very dark history in its use it's got it yeah it it does the, the, there are a lot of terrible things that you could that historically have been used to justify 
that that, that ha- it has been used historically to justify. Yeah, like uh, the elephant in the room, shall we say right now, uh, slavery. Slavery. It was used yeah. to justify owning people, owning human beings as property. Yeah, th- this was a contradiction built in from the very beginning that was kind of left to the states and... It built up to the like the contradictions is built up to the point where it blew up in the Civil War eighteen you know eighteen sixty you know it, so how do we want to how do we two white guys want to want to handle this topic uh, I, I mean I, I know. Where, where, where do we want to start um, I don't know I could start with a little tidbit of history of legal maneuvering that Lincoln did during the Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, hey, why don't you start All right. with that? So, it's a good jumping-off point. Okay, th- there we go. So uh, Abraham Lincoln did absolutely incredible uh, deal when he signed the Emancip- Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and here's what he did. Um, he knew that he could not out like he could not overstep his legal bounds and outlaw slavery across the entire Union. At the time, the Union was slave states and free states, and the slave states were in open rebellion against the government. So what he did was pretty much said, okay, since these states are now in open rebellion against the United States government, we are in a state of war. So being in a state of war, they're still technically part of us. They're still technically part of the Union until they achieve their independence. Uh, So therefore... Any bit of property that they have should be considered, you know, property, just that. Uh, and likewise can be confiscated by the federal government. So he basically said, since slaves are property and these slave states are in rebellion, I therefore have the legal authority to confiscate the slaves and thus free them. And I th- and that's how we got the Emancipation Proclamation. That's why it only applied to the southern states, mm. which is an interesting piece of legal maneuvering to get something that was good. Yeah, for sure. And it's so the Tenth Amendment. It feels like it's one of those one of those pieces of law that is. I don't know how I want to put this, but controversial to say the least it's something that it's something that legislators can hide behind when a controversial topic is still toxic to touch like in the in the early 1800s when when abolition was becoming a you know a more and more viable topic leaving it to the states was something that was um you know, it was sort of the default option to to keep people from, you know, really, really considering whether to, to, to keep people from considering the, the major moral issue that could be legislated at a federal level of whether people can own other people. And it, 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 it at the time and in the aftermath of that. Segregation was also, you know, held up by the Tenth Amendment. Uh, Jim Crow laws definitely kept to the states because, of course, the states know best how to govern their local cultures, and the federal government shouldn't interfere with that. That's how the reasoning went. But, you know, it's one of those things where when the federal level is not ready or willing to grapple with what is otherwise an important moral issue and an important moral principle that should be translated into law. Like I was talking, like we talked about in the American values episode, like law come laws come down to an expression of a value and the, and the value of, you know, human dignity and, and uh, you know, human liberty and the idea that people of different racial populations are, people in the end and that it should apply to them yeah historically it was one of those one of those difficult topics but it also has a good side too because there are topics today that we would prefer to see the states have more control over for instance when we're talking about 
to stick to the concept of racial justice, I think that the war on drugs at the federal level is a complete failure and that it should be left up to the states to decide laws on their own without federal without federal uh, interference. Very and, much so. Um, yeah. You actually do see this uh, nowadays, um, not only in just the state level, but also on the city level. Uh, for example, very recently, it was decided that uh, offshore drilling was going to be allowed in uh, along the California coast, and the, uh, the the city of San Francisco didn't want it. They didn't want that in their neighborhood. So what they did was they used an interesting legal loophole, which they have used before, is they used zoning laws. Uh, they knew that yeah. offshore drilling sites... Uh, require a shore base in order to get the oil from the rig to uh, to the mainland to be refined. So what they did was uh, they used the zoning laws to pro prohibit a uh, shore-based oil site from being built along in, within the city limits, mm -hmm. thus making it impossible for uh, the federal government's, you know, withdrawal of... Uh, environmental policy pretty much a going back to we're going to allow it they actually allow like they're willing to allow this when the people who live there don't want it and they exercise that rights through zoning laws they said we don't want this hmm. so therefore we're going to exercise our rights and say no you cannot build an uh, an onshore site to help your offshore drilling facility um that's really clever. I, yeah, I like I that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, you see a lot of these sneaky little uh, tactics that the people use. But at the same time, the federal government is also using similar tactics through mm -hmm. funding. For example, uh, the federal government has a policy that is will provide infrastructure like infrastructure funding for road improvements. Mm hmm for states that have an over 21 drinking policy or a seatbelt law. Mm. Uh, and they will, if the states decide to exercise their rights, they lose their funding. So it effectively, yeah. the federal government is blackmailing the states into complying with what they want. Ooh, that's one way to put it. Now, that's also a workaround to something that is definitely off the table for the federal government. And it's, a, it's something that just came that just was reinforced, and I think a lot of people found out for the first time about uh, anti-commandeering doctrine mm. in in federal in, in federalism, and it came up in a what was it the NCAA case that just uh, where the Supreme Court uh, knocked down a law that, in a roundabout way, prohibited states from um, legislating on the question of uh, sports gambling. And yeah. what it came down to is that there, there, there is a there's a doctrine in constitutional law called anti-commandeering or commandeering where the federal government is not allowed to issue edicts to like command the states to do something. And the way that this law was was uh, uh, worded, it essentially came down to a command that state legislatures shall not uh, create any laws allowing for state. Uh, state level uh, sports gambling and doing it that way is a no-no but tying it like tying it to something like that is a clever workaround that Congress likes to find uh, yeah. when they can't make it about uh, interstate commerce is another one of the workarounds for right. uh, f for regulating state by state issues that may not fall within their purview as uh, laid out in the constitution. Yeah. They, they hijack uh, state law via funding. It's like, if you want this money, mm -hmm. you'll pass this law. Like we'll just withhold funding if you don't pass this law. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the way the federal government is, has been treating it, which is really, I'm waiting for a, a, a case to come forward and really decide this. Like, is that constitutional? You are treating a state differently because it behaves in a different fashion. Like, mm -hmm. Is that really uh, constitutionally justifiable? 
Yeah, I don't know. I guess that's more of a philosophical issue. And, like, maybe we can get a little bit into the philosophy behind the Tenth Amendment. Like, it came out of the debate at the founding of the Constitution between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And, um, and to, to drill down even further back on that, there are a lot... And what, what I think the Confederacy came down to beyond slavery, like philosophically, a lot of people felt that the Articles of Confederation were just fine. And they wanted to go back to something like that. I think like the government structure of the Confederacy and the amount of autonomy and sovereignty that the states enjoyed under that system with an extremely weak federal system that didn't really have the power to do anything, but it was really an agreement between sovereign states in that philosophical way. Um, that That's something that is at least enshrined in a minor way by the 10th Amendment. It is at least an an acknowledgement that the states do have the power to decide things on their own that are not addressed in the Constitution. And as we've said, the dark side of that is you had a half of an early country that believed that Africans were inherently inferior and deserving of being enslaved and that their economy depended on uh, keeping them in uh, bondage. And that 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 was at least when when people try to make the apologistic case for the Civil War and they say that it comes down to states' rights. This is what they hope people think of is the idea of the Tenth Amendment, and this was never addressed in the Constitution, but it's always an obfuscation. Yeah. to not talk about the real reason, which is that you wanted to own people. <laughs> As I've put many times before on this show and just in life in general, it's these people were willing to put uh, the economy above human dignity, mm-hmm. uh, which is not something we should see in an economy. Now, I mean, when I think of like... Uh, when I think of the Civil War, I think of a, this one particular general, this guy named James Longstreet. Uh, he was he was a gen- Confederate general during the, the Civil War he, at the Battle of Gettysburg. He was one of the big commanders. He was sort of Robert E. Lee's secondhand man. Um, but after the Civil War, he really came out as an abolitionist. Like he thought the mm-hmm. idea of slavery was absolutely abhorrent. And he was very displeased with the idea of slavery being the basis of the southern economy and you know at one point i believe he ended up saying that we we should have freed the slaves first before we you know launched an attack on the north that, mm-hmm. and i feel i feel like he was probably not alone but at the same time you have this entire uh confederacy that has a slave economy which is reprehensible and not sustainable at the same and, time inexcusable to, and hey oh speaking of um speaking of it being unsustainable that's one argument i've heard for why we should never have gone to war with the south because it was going to resolve itself anyway there was it wasn't sustainable to have a slave economy so eventually they would have had to free them eventually and I don't buy that because if we want to... Nor I. Uh, well, let's talk about why yeah. that is because I think that uh, we should be honest about our counterfactuals. Whenever we want to assert something like that, let's, let's, let's think through the implications of a statement like that. Okay, so here, here's where my mind has gone, and it, it's a dark place. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> well, you know that well enough. Let's say that you had a system like the Confederacy that had, in the state constitutions and in the secession statements that came out, very clear affirmations of slavery is why we're doing this, and like the white race is, you know, whatever construct you want to say that is, it is superior to the black race, and that's why they're enslaved and all that. So let's say you had that system that was white supremacist, and uh, based on that, and based on a slave economy of a racial underclass that they had taken against its will to, you know, work in its territory. 
And then let's say that the slave economy became unsustainable and they decided to industrialize and no longer have the agricultural slave economy that they had. What do you think would have happened to all those Africans? Mm-hmm. They would have been eaten up by the system. Eaten up by the system, sent back in a vicious way, or <clears throat> annihilated. Mass genocide. More yeah. so than what uh, pre-Civil War South was. Yeah, like, and uh, like uh, you see the you see the results of that after the after the African population was freed and made uh, eventually U.S. citizens is like the animosity never went away and that genocidal mindset never left the most strident of Confederate supporters throughout the history of the rest of the 19th century and through much of the 20th century is like you eventually saw that and a lot of injustice was was held up by the idea that the states get to decide this uh you know segregation separate be equal a lot of those decisions were made on the basis of the constitution does not address this and it is up to the individual states to make their own way on these issues and that's something that the united states really haven't had it had much reason or will to grapple with the fact that 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 really was a that was really a thing that we have to do. We can't just brush it we're, under we're the rug. St- we're still reeling from the effects of this. I mean, we're, yeah, like oh yeah, it's almost like let's say the South either won the Civil War, or maintained a slave economy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, you would still see the white supremacy, but instead of waiting for you know, a hundred years for a civil rights movement to really take off, you know, less than a hundred years. You'd have to wait, you know, five centuries before that mentality, Mm. you know, really starts to, to take a turn. Mm. Uh, And that for that culture to change, it would have been a very, very slow change. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm, I'm really upset at the uh, the idea of of white supremacists still existing even after we fought an entire war of over this, over the idea of uh, that people are not property, um, and we're still fighting this. Mm-hmm. And I think. Um, a lot of the things you see nowadays, especially the hostility, the racial hostility that you've seen was brought about by like the Reconstruction era. Because in the South, you didn't have um, before it was only white men could vote and they held the power slave economy. But all of a sudden their slaves are made citizens with voting rights. And all of a sudden you have northerners carpetbagging their way down south. Uh, thus making the people who lived there and who were in power suddenly the minority, it seems mm. like. And they were very bitter about that. That's where we got uh, organizations like, like the Ku Klux Klan to develop. Uh, mm. that, that's where the, uh, the real racial hatred came about. It was out of spite for, you know, the defeated South. And these defeated Southerners suddenly being the it's almost like they viewed themselves as the slavers where the slaves suddenly become the masters. Mm. And they were very upset about it. Um, Yeah. And then you ended up, I mean, in our recent history, in the last few years, we've seen a lot of those issues of um, a lot of communities in the South built statues to commemorate confederate uh i don't want to say the word heroes but confederate figures but they were not built in the way that they were kind of sold to us in the recent debates over them they weren't built at the time to commemorate people who in the moment were doing notable things they were they were built during that period of uh of real of of the open hostile resentful 
racial hatred. Like oh. it, it was, it, it was at the end of the 18th century, at the turn of the, tw- I'm sorry, at the, at the end of the 19th century, at the, at the turn of the 20th century. They, to, oh. to 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 make it clear to African populations and former slave populations, African Americans, that no, you're not welcome here. Like a lot of yeah. the, uh, um, a lot of those statues and whatnot actually got built during the civil rights movement in the 1950s yeah. and 60s. Like, yeah, fr- fr- from like the early 1900s through that era. Yeah. 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 Th- so this wasn't even the, the, the Reconstruction era. This is the civil mm-hmm. rights era that yeah. these were built uh, because it goes to sort of this traditionalism, progressivism arguments that I've brought up before in my moment of clarity. Uh, it, it goes on to talk about... Um, they viewed it as an attack on their their southern culture and their southern pride, uh, so they are effectively taking up arms against this uh, this mm-hmm. idea of racial equality, and they think it's a bunch of nonsense. And like, not all southerners believe this, but uh, no, the, no, we're talking we're talking specifically about the the um, the white supremacists. Yeah, I would say. And and they're all over the the country. They're, this is not just a specifically southern issue. I mean, I you... see plenty of Confederate flags in rural New York. You know, yeah. it's, it's and maybe that's that's something we could touch on too. Is like why is this flag of rebellion such a such an enduring symbol? That that's a tough question to ask. I mean, yeah. Because not, I can, do we even have the time? <laughs> I mean, eh, the night is young, but I, I mean, mean, like could... pe- people have written books about this subject. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if you had an like a formed opinion on it. I'm still forming an um, opinion. It's it, 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 it's such an anomaly to me. It's like to me, I would it, never fly one. But no, um, a lot of people get confused with the Confederate battle flag with the actual flag of the Confederacy. And the ones you see the mm. most often are the, uh, the Confederate battle flag, the, the classic, yeah. you know, uh, red background with the, the white or the, uh, the blue cross and the stars. That, yeah. That's a Confederate battle flag. They, the stars and bar, I... the stars and bars flag of the Confederacy was, uh, uh, it looked more like a Texas flag. Yeah, with with a bunch of stars on it. Well, I don't know if it's. I, I think it's a bit of a moot point to make a distinction yeah. between those two flags because the really the, yeah. the meaning is clear enough in in certain ways. Like, first of all, it is very clearly a a flag of racial hatred. It was something that was flown at segregationist rallies. It was flown in the South to make it clear that you know this is the this is the dividing line between us and them. And I think maybe another part of it apart not a replacement for that reason is there is kind of a sense among especially um super conservative people and like especially among like super conservative rural men an idea of like the eternal fuck you i can do what i want and i think that maybe some of that also plays into it like yeah i'm I'm not sure it's it's hard to get inside the head of 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 uh of that but it it's I, I, as as a patriot as a unionist <laughs> and as a northerner the idea of flying the flag the war flag of an abortive rebellion against the constitution that you know we're here to uphold and to defend and you know that itself rubs me the wrong way and the fact that it that it is indicative of a a pretty clear historical racial animus i i agree with that like yeah, this is it's, it's, it's a uh, it's the flag of the people that wanted to put their economy ahead of human dignity yeah and, and i can no way justify flying that flag now mm-hmm. with these confederate memorials and whatnot i can understand uh, taking them off off of public lands and putting them into a museum for the sake of historic mm. like historical preservation, but yeah. I don't, I don't want to see these things destroyed because they're there they're a part of our history right now. 
like yeah. be, it, be it good or bad and we could you know take those let's put them in a museum and let's say yes these were erected here are the historical uh here's the historical background as to why they were erected here's the context in which they were uh let's put them into their proper context like these were built during the civil rights movement like this was uh less so sort of like how we put it in god we trust on our coins it, it, it had nothing to do with with god it was more of a, a fuck you to the soviet union much mm-hmm. in the way that uh the uh these monuments were erected as uh you know fuck you to the federal government telling us that we have to like the black people now like that's and to the black people like and a fuck you to african-americans yes yeah, that, it's that like how dare you think us that you are equal to us? That's the mentality that they are having, and I I can't abide that mentality. You yeah, know, this is something we have to, as an American people, we have to struggle uh, to to rectify this wrong, mm-hmm. and we have to change our our culture, our very culture, in order to to advance. If we're actually going to live together in peace and harmony. We, mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge the mistakes of our past. We have to acknowledge uh, this horribly racist past that we have in our culture. We have to come to grips with it. Vergangen heights bewältigung, as we've as we've said before. It's that German word. It keeps coming up. You know, it's something it, it's a process that we've never really gone through. And I'm, I'm completely with you on the question of what exactly to do with the statues. I think that mere iconoclasm should not be the way that we go about this if you if you simply destroy the monuments and that that tempts us to to say there we've done it we've wiped away the stain of our past and now we can move on no you got to put them in a context where we can look back at ourselves and say look at how look at how bad it used to be and how much farther we can go and how much bad i i know i didn't I, I'm not even sure if I want to put it that way. Our current president has not really created a climate to say that things are much better. I mean, I guess structurally, in a way, it's not as bad as it was in the 1950s and 60s, but you know, there's still a lot of attitudes to change. And how exactly you go about changing attitudes is a very hard question. Um it's a lot of nuance to be done and yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure how exactly we as a nation can, can go can go about that. Um, well, JT, maybe for a moment, let's, let's think a moment about what is a responsibility that might come along with the 10th amendment. You know, it grants to the States, all of the right to the States and to the people. Again, the nebulous concept of the people, all of the powers that are not enumerated to the Congress. So I'm not sure if you had a, well, a thought on the, like, what's a responsibility go with that? The responsibility lies actually within the states and within the people of those states. The responsibility is that if the federal government is abusing their power or doing something that is morally questionable, the states should be the ones that step up and say, no, we will not abide by that policy. We will invoke our 10th Amendment rights to handle this situation uh, because we feel that the federal government's uh, policies or laws are either unconstitutional or are aimed at... uh, I would say aimed at a certain group of people to advance them or push them down. Like mm-hmm. it's the right of the states to say, no, we won't abide by that because it is not your place to tell us what, like how people should be treated in the sense that um, like if the, if the government were going around saying that, Discrimination is a-okay. You know, uh, you you can discriminate all you like and still receive federal funding and stuff like that, or like trying to coax the states somehow into passing laws 
uh, you know, blackmailing the states, I would say, into passing laws uh, that suit their worldview when, and the states should have the right to say, no, we're not going to do that. Like mm-hmm. your, your war on drugs we see as uh, ineffective and we're not going to support you at all. Which I, I, I mean, uh, there, yeah. are, there are some states, I, I think California is one. Uh, there are a couple of other states that are, are starting to do this. Uh, they're refusing to help uh, both DEA and uh, ICE agents. Mm-hmm. They're refusing to help them at all. Even though, like, it's, it's, yes, this is federal policy, but we have no obligation whatsoever to help you or even provide you with with adequate equipment like you you have no right to come here and tell us we want this from you and we're going to take it yeah interesting point um i just add that i think another responsibility for citizens when it comes to the 10th amendment is to to know your local and state politics i think it's it's terribly easy for us to pay sole attention to the federal level and to what congress is up to and what the president is up to and while that's that's an extremely important. It's a double plus important. Uh, national news thing is to do. Ju- yeah. National news yeah. is just that. Yeah, national news. But like, I think a lot of people are not fully aware. Uh, there are things that I hear on the morning radio on my drive to work that the state legislature had just done that I was like, I didn't know that that was on the table. Like, this is something that uh, I, I try to pay attention to, and it just seems like at the state level, it like. It's hard to keep track. It's not. It's not interesting. It's. It's not sexy. It's not. It's not filled. Well, New York is kind of filled with scandal, as uh, <laughs> as I'm sure some some who might be following the news have been have been kind of aware of. But uh, I think that's that's an important thing to do. Is like we have more of a st- more of our day to day lives are governed by the state and local level, and so find out what your state legislature and what your counties and what your towns are up to, because this is what is enabled by the 10th amendment. Like this is, this is what is left in their court to do is, you know, Congress has its role, but in the end, your, your regular day-to-day life is going to be, is, is going to be far more affected by, by your, by your state capital. And that's something. Now you mentioned, uh, both the drug war and um, immigration policy. In fact, I think maybe more specifically, uh, sanctuary cities. That's a concept that I honestly I wasn't terribly familiar with it until this past election. It wasn't a concept that I had heard. But like, as the current president was on the campaign trail, that was something that I was asked more and more about by people that i know who you know who, who want to know about politics and you know i, I yeah how, how do you feel about that like i think that the states the states and the cities have you know what it i don't you know i don't have a fully formed opinion on this I, i'm maybe, with maybe you, you start on this off. i am yeah, with I, you on this i don't have a quite fully yeah. developed opinion on the idea of sanctuary cities um because the drug where I do. <laughs> yeah, almost certainly so. Yeah, uh, yeah. But these sanctuary cities are pretty much saying um, the government has the ability to regulate the border, like the federal at the federal government level. But to mm-hmm. this, like, these we're talking about people who are already over the border. Yeah. Like the federal government's jurisdiction has almost run out. They can surely uh, pursue these people, but. It do the states have these rights and do these cities have these rights to tell the government to go float uh, when they ask for help? It's just yeah. like if, for example, if I lived in a sanctuary city and was a member of law enforcement and then like immigration enforcement came up to our department, it was just like, hey, we need your help in rounding up all these immigrants mm-hmm. and to us, it's just like, hey, these people haven't really done anything in our city. We have no right to to round them up. I yeah. mean, they have. Do they have the right to say, no, we're not, we're not going to help you at all. If you want, if you want to do it, go ahead. But we're not going to help you, and we'll try to actually keep you out of our cities. I think that's a. I would say that is justifiable within the the realms of the Tenth Amendment. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, based on what I know now, that that's about where I stand. Is it's one thing to regulate the national border, but then to go into individual jurisdictions distant from that border, and then to demand to to common to command the states and to command the localities to cooperate on something that. Uh, may not have the same legal basis as you know a checkpoint or the or, or the policing of a border itself. Yeah, that that's something that, like just philosophically, I don't feel comfortable allowing the federal government that much latitude. Right. Uh, oh, speaking speaking now, of immigration I, policy, I, oh, have you? Uh, oh no, I'm, go, I'm go, sorry. Go. I was going to say, but at the same time, is it using the same mentality? Is it also not a up to the states or cities to allow uh, ICE and to uh, enforce these uh, federal immigration policies. Like, they have that same Mm -hmm. right. Um, So it's sort of a double-edged sword in that mentality. Yeah, there's not a lot of clarity on this issue. And then as you see, like, it's harder to make that case on the federal level because we're starting to see a lot more abuses of human dignity at yes. the federal level in the enforcement like we're, we're seeing families separated literally separate. when, we're seeing literally no yeah. what was it like 50, <laughs> was it 1200 1500 children were like unaccounted for absolutely unaccounted oh, for God, that's right like yeah uh what, what, that is such an atrocious act of neglection at the federal level yeah i mean to I, just I don't understand how something track. like that happens like not only have you taken children from your families, but you don't even know where to return them. Like you yeah. never bothered to ask yourself that question. Mm. Uh, like how do they sleep at night knowing that they did this? That's something I don't understand. Mm-hmm. How do they live with themselves knowing that they took a child away from a family and then lost the child? Like what response? And at the end yeah. of the day, there's not going to be, there's no accountability for that. No one's going to be punished over this. Like nobody's going to be, mm-hmm. you know, brought to justice or held responsible for for these heinous acts of losing children. Uh, no, like def- define losing. I don't even know what they, ha- like they, d- they does lose, anybody even like they how lose, do you lose them in the system. They lose them in the system. Um, I know I was listening. I was listening to NPR the other day, and they were talking about there were some of these children who were taken away from their families, and they were brought to psychiatric institutions and actually administered, like, actually administered drugs, like. This, oh, so now we're the Soviet Union. We're yeah. using psychiatry as a political repression we're, tool. We're like, actually giving these kids, like they said. The word they used was psychotropic drugs. And I'm just saying, if there's an ounce of truth in this, this is messed up beyond belief. And this is something that if the states need, if the states really want to take a 10th Amendment approach to this, they need to do it. And they Mm -hmm. need to put a stop to this sort of thing and say, no, we're not going to help you anymore. And we're going to act. Yeah, we're going to actively defy you. We're going to force your agents out of the area type Mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah, I'd like to see more like legislative action on this at state levels. Like, like it, it, it's one thing to have executive agencies and executive like governors and mayors making these decisions, but but I would like to see more and more legislative challenges to the federal authority, as we have seen in the the question of uh, of the drug war. I mean, n- oh. number a number of states have not only legalized medical marijuana but also recreational just i want to get high marijuana like and and so far like for for as much bluster as we've heard from attorney general sessions on reigniting the war on on drugs and marijuana specifically i haven't heard that much on on um like how that's progressing in places like colorado um, or um or washington or oregon or california or any of the other places and, I, th- I think and now my oh yeah i'm sorry and and now my governor is talking about because he needs to like shore up his liberal street cred against a primary challenger uh governor cuomo is now talking about re- uh legalizing recreational marijuana so hey 
Hey it's man, fine. all power to you. I'm not a fan, but you know, if, if if you gotta bolster your opinion by doing something like this, hey, go for it. That's funny. <laughs> but, but but go on, JT. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, what was I gonna say? Um, <laughs> now you got me going on the war on drugs. Uh, okay, so <laughs> please, please, the, get going. The, the biggest thing I hear about uh, the people who are totally against, uh, specifically Colorado's uh, uh, legalization of marijuana for recreational use. As they say, well, since they instituted that, the amount of fatal crashes, you know, automobile crashes has gone up. And there's that's not quite true. Yeah. We did see a rise in automobile automobile crashes. Very, very slight. But they went up around the entire country at the Mm -hmm. same levels. And what they found was that there was no correlation between marijuana legalization and the the actual amount of automobile fatalities that there were that's mm-hmm. actually like automobile fatalities went up slightly but they also went up slightly across every other state like mm-hmm. w- same trend across every other state so really not true so i'm waiting yeah. there's zero real hardcore evidence to suggest that recreational marijuana should remain illegal. Like the, the science behind a lot of these things goes back to like, you know, the fifties when it mm-hmm. was, you know, Hey, we just want to outlaw this because hippies, the people who take it are associated mm-hmm. with the civil rights movement. We have to put an end to it. You know, there's all, well, there's also the other, the other side of that question of uh, it, it's more than just the political affiliation of of those who use it, but there might also be a slight acknowledgement of um, part of how they may have gotten that way. <laughs> you know, the the psychonautic opening of the mind that may occur under the use of not only just marijuana, but like LSD and psilocybin are similar substances where you can have a from my understanding, you can have a radical shift in your worldview after even one use of especially the heavier psychedelics. And that's the last thing that a 1950s and 60s conservative USA uh, federal government wanted is to have a, 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 a mass radical shift in in a worldview that was on its way out. And so... Yeah, there is that question, and I, I kind of wonder what's going to happen to the culture if, uh, A, if more states follow the example of those who have gone before and uh, make that federal challenge under the Tenth Amendment, and B, if the federal government one day comes to its senses and just ends the prohibition itself. I'm kind of curious yeah. how that's going to be, how that's going to ripple through the society. Um, I think if we legalize marijuana on a national level, mm-hmm. I think it's going to put a lot of the the cartels and small time dealers uh, sort of out of business. Yeah, that's one. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's one th- of the big th- things. Is, that's the one or, thing or, that gives, organized crime. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing that uh, a lot of people will believe in the gateway theory that marijuana leads to other harder drugs um it's because of the illegality of marijuana here are people like if you put it into a context the people who deal in marijuana probably also have associates or friends or know other people who have access to the harder drugs or deal within it deal them themselves they have the mm-hmm. access to it. And somebody who seeks out these people to do something illegal are more willing to continue with that illegality and continue to, to find the harder drugs. And it's just like, hey, I know I just wanted to get high on marijuana, but I see that you have some cocaine there. Or mm-hmm. I, I think you know a guy. Like, that's where they think the the gateway theory, so to speak, begins it's just because of an associate of a cultural association i would say mm-hmm. or a, a socio uh, a social interaction it's not so much that you use marijuana the next step is cocaine like you will use cocaine if you use marijuana like mm-hmm. there's no scientific evidence whatsoever to support it and i think legalization will end up proving that correct 
mm-hmm. will say that, yeah, if you legalize marijuana and make it accessible, that people are no longer going to go to these uh, these folks who have the harder drugs. Yeah. Like, and we already have an example of that. One previous usurpation of uh, of state authority under Congress's uh, under Congress's authority to regulate interstate commerce was the Eighteenth Amendment, which <laughs> which prohibited. As, now, very quite relevant to our little podcast here, it prohibited the the manufacture and sale and transportation of alcohol. And from the years of 19, what was it, 1919 to, oh, when was the 21st Amendment that repealed it? It was 1919 to 1933. 1933. So between those years, you saw a radical increase in organized crime and in gang violence and all of the things that we have also seen in the context of other, in in the context of the prohib of the prohibition of other chemicals, and somewhere out there, there is an Al Capone of marijuana, and he now something about that that, that I kind of have been playing around in my head with is uh, how many how many drug cartels do you think have secretly legitimate lobbyists? That. Wow, I I don't even know. Like, I, hey man, I, I, think I, of it. Think it, about it, man. Open your eyes, people. <laughs> Dan, take take off that ridiculous tinfoil hat. <laughs> it's only a hop, skip, and a jump from something like that. Like, I, I mean, I, the the fact that Al Capone and the and like the mafia syndicates didn't have something like that. I mean, right. political corruption was part of their modus operandi, but. But like lobbying, that's that's something else, man. That's next level. <laughs> well, if, I'll tell you what. If any of our listeners are active marijuana users, I encourage you buy American. Because <laughs> if you if you don't buy American, a lot of that money is going to go into the cartels, either in South America, or whatever. It could end up in hands of people that do violence. Who are you mm-hmm. know? It could end up in the hands of terrorist organizations, for all you know. So yeah, I recall buy, that. buy local. Yeah. <laughs> Buy locally, think globally. Yeah, I think that was but... a that was a slogan for my college days. There you go. Mm. So where else can we go with the Tenth Amendment? I mean we've kind of been running it down for this entire time, but I think that it's important to remember that it does have its utilities, especially on the current issues of, of things like the drug war and on immigration policy. Like the idea that the States have their role and Congress and the federal government has its role is an important structural point to make for the for how America works and in fact I've got like I've got a passage from Orestes Brownson's The American Republic to oh, read boy. to you it's it, it's a quick one it's 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 just an acknowledgement of what a complicated issue that this is so so he writes early in the treatise um the great problem of our statesmen has been from the first and really from the first, from day one. Back to the quote. How to assert union without consolidation and states' rights without disintegration because secession was an was one of those issues that was held under the Tenth Amendment. Is you know the the federal government did not Congress did could not prohibit under its authority at the time states from leaving the union and so under that assumption they felt free to leave the union at the same time over consolidation isn't a terribly good idea either because of washington dc and a minority of people coming in from those states as the representatives may not have the most nuanced view of how to how to govern in the broadest possible way on the broadest possible set of topics. And so even though there is a horrific dark side to the 10th Amendment, it's something that we really cannot dispense with. Maybe you have some thoughts on that, JT. I'm just kind of, you know. Uh, that's the fact, Jack. And that's the fact, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it, it, it's something that we still need, even though we fought an entire war over 
some of the more reprehensible things that we've done, it is yeah. it still gives the states the rights uh, to give the finger to the federal government and say, no, we're not going to comply because we are better than that. Like yeah. we, we are morally better than the policies that you want us to enact. And, and I, I think it's an important amendment. Can it be taken advantage of? Absolutely. We fought a whole mm-hmm. war over this. But at the end of the day, it, it still remains. Like, we, we still have that right. Uh, the states still have that right. Well, JT, let me just bite down on this cherry old crack. Uh. Oh. Is end it? of my Rob Roy. Mm. There it is. That is. I'm at the end of my mint julep. Yeah? You going to chew on those mint leaves? Maybe the later date. <laughs> After I finish well, the drink entirely. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's a, oh shit! There's that <laughs> sound again. Oh. Well, JT, this has been an an exhilarating journey through America's early history and through the Bill of Rights, but the Illuminati have put the kibosh on this conversation. And right. have um, legislated us into a corner and have commandeered our podcast. So there it is. Well, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> and fellow peasants, <laughs> uh, if you have any bitches, gripes, concerns, uh, questions you want us to address, things, just comments about the show, uh, send us an email at cocktailpartycongress at gmail.com. Uh, mm-hmm. Or leave us a, fa- a Facebook message if you want. We are on Facebook. Um, and really, uh, 10th Amendment. There we go. There it is. Yeah, 10th <laughs> Amendment. And uh, one more thing. Uh, something we I keep forgetting to bring up is if you want to help people find the show, something that you can do is share it on your social media or probably the most important thing you could do. And this is something that is not obvious unless you're a podcast insider go to iTunes and give us a good review. Give us uh, four or more stars. Say something nice about the podcast if you think it's warranted. It will help us in the algorithm. It'll help more people find the show when they're just browsing. You know, once you start listening to a single podcast, you are now a podcast listener, and it's only a matter of time before you stumble across something like the Cocktail Party Congress. So if you think it's something that you that you want people to hear more of, then uh, go right ahead and uh, do us that solid. And maybe one day we'll do a solid to you. We'll, we'll, we'll think of something. We'll, I'm sure we will. Yeah, we'll, we'll, right. we'll think of something to give back to our to our loyal listenership, and we do love you with all of our hearts. Yes, we do. Uh, um, we love you almost as much as the Constitution, but, <laughs> not, but not too much less than that. <laughs> there we go. Uh, the in, our intro music again was Dark Sea Land by Kevin McLeod. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Yeah, that, thank you. That again. and more royalty-free music is available at incomputech.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan, I think that's it. Yeah, <laughs> JT, I think that was a that was a good run, and we will see you and hear you, listeners, for the next topic. Who knows what it will be? In vino veritas, Dan. In Vino Veritas JT. We often treat our ideologies like suits of armor. They give us great comfort and protection when we do political battle. The slings and arrows of debate and detraction bounce right off of its wearer. If well-maintained, little can penetrate its defenses and do true harm. But the security that it provides is also quite restrictive. First, one must sacrifice flexibility. Turning one's head, lifting an arm, taking a great leap across the battlefield become chores. Many people make peace with those limitations and train themselves not to challenge their armor too much. The encumbrance must be adapted to, not compensated for. This is an easier path than reconsidering the armor itself. Those who don armor will also notice that their vision is limited. The visor on a bassinet is a terrible window through which to view reality. One may easily lose sight of threats in their periphery or be blindsided by the unforeseen. Alternative plans of attack and potential allies may go unnoticed, either because the warrior cannot be bothered to turn to look for the opportunities or because they are suspicious of anyone whose armor does not match their own. And one last problem of ideological armor is that of growth. 
Once properly constructed and fitted into, the last thing that you would want to do is grow out of it. To even entertain the thought sends many to shrink into their armor for greater safety. What a dangerous concept to outgrow one's own sense of security. But growth still happens, and the armor tightens, and the restrictions grow more intense and harder to work against. Eventually, one must either retreat, shrink even further, or even consider taking off the armor. Once you do, a whole new world opens up before you. The battles you once fought so confidently may seem more dangerous in this new state, but you will soon learn to be quick on your feet and to duck and to dodge more nimbly. You also learn how best to take a blow. Not every swing will hit you, and you may even find that on final contact your opponent wields little more than a boffer sword. The noise that it made against your armor was intimidating and the confidence of their thrust overwhelming, but the wound it inflicts could only be to your ego. Enough of this extended metaphor. Ideology is a hard thing to do away with. It surely has its uses. Everyone needs a starting point for honest inquiry. The structure that it provides is especially helpful to those who have neither the time nor the energy to follow events closely. And we certainly live in a time where following the sayings and doings of our federal government are mentally and emotionally taxing, to say the least. The self-imposed limitations are just that. Limitations that are self-imposed. If you find yourself struggling to see the world clearly, or to formulate its problems wisely, or to seek solutions to those problems constructively, then, perhaps, it's time to ditch the full plate. Believe me, I've tried it a few times in my life, and I've never felt lighter on my feet, and the field of battle has never looked more clear in my sight, and I've never known so many diverse and interesting friends and future allies, I hope. A willingness to step into the fray without wearing our chosen armor may be just the thing to reinvigorate our conversations and the polity. That isn't to say that we need to cast our chosen causes to the wayside, oh no. Just, just a willingness to not stop at your opponent's armor, and not at your own. Besides, there's a human inside there, whether it's inside your own armor, or inside the other guys, or gals. Either way, I certainly think it's worth trying out. The Republic still stands. <laughs>